Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 68. My name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher from Acton-Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life of the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how they get in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. This episode, I sit down with Barry Ide. Since 1999, Barry has been a biology teacher at Green Hill School in Addison, Texas. Barry has taught a wide variety of science classes throughout his career and currently teaches advanced biology, AP biology, and big history, science of deep time. Barry also mentors senior level capstone research projects. For more than a decade, Barry has worked for the College Board in a variety of roles supporting AP biology. These include being a reader, a question table leader, and assistant to the chief reader. Barry has also been an AP Biology exam free response question and multiple choice item writer. Welcome, Barry. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, nice to talk to you on a, a Sunday morning. Um, it is actually sunny where yeah. I am. I'm sure it's nice and warm in Texas. Actually, it's surprisingly cold down in the 40s this morning. Oh, wow. It might be warmer in Massachusetts right now than in Texas. Strangely enough. Yeah, we were, before we started recording, reminiscing about the last time we were together, and I believe it was, you know, it was a chilly, like, 65 or something in San Diego that day. <laughs> yes, it was. It was painful in San Diego that day. Yeah. Um, much, well, much worse than, I think, up in Providence at NAPT or Colorado at NAPT, all the other times when we may have interacted. Yeah, well, Chicago is coming up next year, so I have a feeling that those will be... Uh, those will be some chilly mornings. I was, I, I always go and I run at, I run every morning before okay. like everything everywhere. I think most people know that, like whether I'm at the read or at the NABT or whatever. So, so when I, I was running in San Diego, you know, I'd run out and everybody was out running in the morning, you know, like we saw Paul Strode and saw, you know, various other people as I was out in my runs. And then uh, in Chicago, when I'd get back to the hotel for my run, people would look at me as I came through the lobby, like I was nuts. Like, <laughs> How are you outdoors in this 30 degree weather? Yeah. <laughs> so. That's when I knew um, I genuinely loved the person who would become my wife because um, I drove up to Chicago for New Year's um, and from South Carolina, which is where I was spending the holidays. And I was walking around downtown. I'm like, why am I here? Oh, right. Yes. This is why I'm suffering through this weather. So. <laughs> and then you promptly moved to Texas. So. Well, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, yeah, we could we could talk a lot about San Diego. I feel like it might come up come up in a few different instances. Um, but I think I just teased it a little bit um, about becoming a teacher and the fact that you teach in Texas. But uh, what uh, led you to being a science teacher? What led you into the classroom? Um, for me, it's being in the classroom has almost been um, something that I've always wanted to do. Um, you know, when I was six. We all have an answer to the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, and my first response that I can remember was to become a marine biologist because I had a, a Fisher Price playset that had a dolphin and a little submarine. And, and that was <laughs> fascinating to me, playing on the shag carpets in my parents' house. Um, but shortly after that, um, I got serious about my life. And, and by the time I was six or seven, I knew I wanted to be a teacher. 
Um, and what I've wanted to teach has always changed um, through my early education. And it was largely you know, motivated by who was my most charismatic, impactful teacher that year. Um, but when I got to high school, um, I had a wonderful teacher um, named Mr. Moyer, um, Ken, and he was a strong influence on me um, in the classroom as well as a scientist. Um, and I had him for my introductory biology class my sophomore year, and, I, and then I took AP Biology with him um, my junior year. And I realized that I liked science, that I, I, I thought I was okay at it, I was pretty good at it, um, and that you know it fit my worldview and my, my mindset. Um, and so I just stuck with biology from then on. Um, but it's always been teaching. Um, I come from a family where you know, a good proportion of the people in my family are involved in education, child care, nursing, you know, careers like that. Um, and so it's it's been something I've always wanted to do. Um, it wasn't a decision that I came to later on in life or, um, you know, mm -hmm. it's not a second career. It's, it's always been my primary path and I've, I've loved it. The thing that popped the most about that story that was that was interesting, and you talked about, you know, always wanting to be a teacher, but the way you described Ken Moyer is a is a teacher, but as a scientist. Mm -hmm. So I think it's interesting that you viewed your science teacher as a scientist. When I don't know that that's necessarily always common. I think people view teachers as teachers, but you know, how many teachers do they view that they think of their science teacher as a scientist, their history teacher as a historian? Is there something specific about why that particular teacher came across both as scientist and teacher? Um, you know, I wonder how much of my depiction of, uh, of Mr. Moyer now is colored <laughs> by how I view science teaching today. Um, I, I don't know that I would have thought of it that way when I was a student. But yeah, I agree with you. I think that really impactful teachers um, are often people who are scientists and historians. And they may not be a professional scientist or a professional historian or a professional writer, um, but they are at heart. Um, and, and that gives them, lends them some, some passion that uh, hopefully leaks out into the classroom and their students are then able to observe and see. You know, for me, being a scientist isn't about doing research, but it's more about you know data-driven analysis and looking at the the observations that we have and, and trying to connect them to conclusions. Um, you know, being genuinely a skeptic, even of things that you've mm -hmm. taken for granted in the past. So, yeah, I like it. It's like a mindset that you can look back and sort of see the way your interactions or how things were presented to say, yeah, they, they had that skeptical scientific mind view back then. Habits of mind is oftentimes the way I describe that. Absolutely. So I often talk about how for me, and we're, we're fairly contemporary in terms of career path. Mm -hmm. The, my experience as a student is radically different from what I, the way I run my class now. Mm -hmm. So, but I, I will say a lot of the people I talk to say, yeah, but when I was back in school, we did this type of thing that would still fit into like the way I teach now, like 90% of it was, you know, lecture and that, but we did this cool project that was this, or I remember us having discussions that went down this path. Were there things like that, that were part of the science or was it literally just that personal connection of somebody who was just a, you know, masterful 
uh, storyteller and and curriculum builder back in in that mindset um, that that sort of drew drew you in. I think it was certainly a, a bit of both. I know that I can recall Mr. Moyer bringing in you know articles and you know trying to make connections between what we were looking at in our textbook and um, our broader daily lives. You know, I can I can recall him talking about. Um, conservation and recycling. And I can remember him bringing in, because I think I had a classmate or a, a peer at my school who's had a family connection to, you know, the, the packing material that's made from starch now, as opposed to styrofoam peanuts. Mm-hmm. Um, I can remember a student being, having a family member that was involved in that production line and assembly line and, and Mr. Moyer, you know, bringing some in and then talking about how this would be better than using plastics or styrofoam because it's just going to get into the ocean, into the waterways. And now here we are, um, 20 some years later with gigantic garbage patches out in the Pacific ocean that are in the public media and at least a little bit more high profile. Um, so I can remember things like that and him talking about twin studies and the, um, you know, interplay between, nature versus versus nurture. Um, and those things stand out to me more than worksheets, packets, homework. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I can remember working in the lab and doing the enzyme lab with potassium permanganate and catalase um, way back when and, and being so excited that we were using burettes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's the, the connections to the, the broader world that I think stand out to me the most today. All right. That, I think that's a nice natural transition into the thing that um, is the real reason I got you here, no, other than it's always nice to talk. Um, but um, I really want to hear about uh, the big history course that you teach. Um, and you call it uh, Big History and Deep Time mm-hmm. um, as, as the course in there. And um, uh, I actually was talking to somebody a couple months ago, and they brought up the David Christian's uh, origin storybook, uh, A Big History of Everything. Mm-hmm. I happen to have on my shelf right above me here. Yes. Um, and, and I've been working through that book um, over the last oh, month and a half, two months myself and reading through it. And, oh, I went down the little rabbit hole and, hey, there's a whole curriculum here. Yep. And professional development on this. And uh, wait a minute, there's a whole teaching community mm-hmm. uh, about big history. Uh, so how did you start teaching this course, Big History? And, and like we can get into like how is it structured and, you know, how, to, how what is it like to teach an interdisciplinary course that is history and science it's it's been a lot of fun for me um it's been really rewarding uh two two summers ago um i was at um the reading and you know one day after spending how many hours looking at test papers (laughs) um i was decompressing in my hotel room with social media and i saw a post on on social media about big history project the website um and i'm like that that is a course I want to teach. Um, I love knowing about how the world came to be from a scientific point of view. And I, I want to learn more about how to connect it to where we're at in the world as a species and as you know, biosphere today. Um, and so I came back to school that August and I'm like, I want to teach this class. And because it is so... Um, a lot of it is is historic. Is I mean, it's his, it's a history class by nature, mm-hmm. 
And so I went to our history department chair and I said, hey, I, I want to teach this class and I know I'm a science teacher and I'm a member of the science department, but what do I have to do to offer this course in some form, whether as a trimester class, a two trimester class, a year long class. And Dr. Amy Brzee, my colleague, the the, science, the history department chair, um, is like, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to teach this class too. And so now we teach it together. There's two of us in the classroom. We've got 17 students. About half the students are taking it as a history course, and their transcript reads big history. Um, and about half the class are taking the course as a science course, and their transcript reads science of deep time. Um, and that's the only reason there's, you know, the, the reason for the difference in name is just so someone who's reading their transcript can tell that it's a science course as opposed to a history class. But they all do the same things, and, and we take a look at, you know, the, the, the billion and billions and billions of years that our universe has been around and how it's changed and passed through different thresholds and produced ever-growing levels of complexity through time. And it's been really, really fun and a lot of uh, eye-opening for me in a couple of different ways. First of all, you know, I'm I'm not by any stretch of the imagination, a historian. Um, and so learning about the Columbian Exchange and the development of civilization <laughs> and hearing my colleague Amy, you know, lament at how, you know, we have to do this one major stretch of time in, in a single week and how she could teach a whole year on it and saying, yeah, I, I felt the same way when we talked about, you know, the formation of life on Earth. Yeah. <laughs> That's been really, really great. Um, learning about history and you know the more modern things that I don't get to talk about or pay attention to in my own classroom very much. And then also the wonderful thing has been having another professional in the classroom every day and watching her interact with students and seeing how she prioritizes use of time and approaches assignments and grading practices and and forcing me to reflect back on my own and you know why do I do it this way is there another way that I could you know approach this and those times when albeit you know they're not as frequent as either of us might like when we sit down and plan what's going to be coming up you know the next unit um, that has been really rewarding for me so there's been a a number of things that I've enjoyed about the course. Um, That's really neat. I'm really psyched about the fact that you teach it as an interdisciplinary course, because mm -hmm. that seems so unique. The idea of having those two adults in the course together. Yeah. And that's, that's something that, um, going back to my own high school education, um, I had two teachers, Judy Cullen and Frank Callahan, and I took a combined English history course with them you know, essential questions of Western civilization. And it was based on the work done by Theodore Sizer out of Brown University, um, the Coalition of Essential oh, yeah. Schools. Yep. And so, you know, rather than as an English class, just reading Gilgamesh, you know, we took a look at the history, the history and the rise of those civilizations. Um, and rather than just reading works from the Renaissance, as we might do in, a, in an English class, you're taking a look at, you know, the historical underpinnings that changed society at those times that led to people being able to write and describe their experiences in the world in a different way. And I think that that experience was, was really impactful for me as a teacher to see um, Frank and Judy interacting in the way that they did and recognizing that a lot of the, the divisions that we make between, you know, historical academic departments are mm -hmm. artificial. They're, they're there to compartmentalize and help us and our students 
focus and understand, but they really are artificial. Um, and that, you know, there, there are ways to blur those lines in, in so many different ways. And I've tried to do that, um, in other ways as well. Um, you know, I, I, I recognize that I'm super fortunate. The school that I teach at is wonderful and supportive, um, in a lot of different ways. And one of the courses that I taught when I first got to Green Hill, um, was an anatomy and physiology class. And time and time and time again, my students were coming to me and asking about what they were doing in the weight room and what they were doing on the athletic field <laughs> and, and how that applied yeah. to what they were experiencing in their bodies and, you know, the physiology of it. And, and I said, you know what, I just want to, I want to change the course. I want to stop calling it anatomy and physiology because my students don't have the interest in memorizing structures um, and learning how the body mm -hmm. is put together. They want to know how it affects their lives. And so I, I changed it to an exercise physiology course. And in time, that course was one that students, you know, we're on a trimester system. And so at the beginning of the year, the first beginning of the year, we, we talked about response to training and periodization and how to, you know, select activities in the weight room or on the field to achieve goals. And their final project end of first trimester was to identify their own personal fitness goals, whatever they might be, and then to design a workout regimen, a fitness plan, a, a menu choice, um, a nutrition plan to, to achieve that. And then throughout the rest of the year, if they did those things and they were able to document it, they'd receive PE credit. You know, And so I love blurring those lines between science and physical education, science and history, having, you know, my colleagues from the English department come and read books, passages. You know, it doesn't happen often, but it's it's a wonderful opportunity for kids to break down barriers in their own minds. Yeah, and I'm sure your school, although I, different size schools have different feelings to them, my school is very siloed. Mm -hmm. That's the way I describe it, that every department is its own independent silo. And so when people come over to science, it's almost like they shut their mind off to the rest of the building. Like they think about, you know, the science department and that the science department interacts with the science department people. And if you interact with people outside of that department, like the students are almost surprised yeah. because we are so physically divided in space. And I do think there's a, there's huge advantages to having that siloed structure. There, there are you know great advantages of things that you can learn about your discipline and the nature of science by doing that. But there's also, as you were saying, huge benefit that you can gain from talking to professionals who have different strengths than you do. And because of the nature of different disciplines, you can learn quite a bit just talking to a teacher who teaches something differently. Yeah. Um, I, I know this from trying to uh, teach books in my alternative mm -hmm. program and bringing books and realizing I do not really have the skills to help students unpack a, a book. Um, it, it was it was shocking how hard it was for me to teach, you know, the, the Henry yeah. Lacks book to my to my to my alternative program kids, um, because these are students who mm -hmm. struggle. And it was a subject that I knew a ton about, but helping them access the reading was not something I, I could do easily yeah. on my own. I mean, I'm looking forward to, at, at my school, we're currently transitioning from um, a progression of chemistry, biology, physics, freshman, sophomore, junior mm -hmm. year, um, to physics first, physics, chemistry, biology. And so um, in a couple of years, we'll be teaching biology to juniors. And one of the currently required um, English classes for juniors is a course on narrative nonfiction. Um, and 
I'm looking forward to collaborating with um, my English colleagues. You know, I've, I've had conversations with the English department chair about, hey, would you be okay making The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks a book that you talk about in that class? And then we can talk about it in biology class from the, the aspect of science and biology and cancer development and treatment and stem cells. And you can take a look at it as um, a work of storytelling, um, social justice, right? And, and we can make that experience mm. so much richer for our students. Um, I think that that would be a wonderful opportunity because it offers exactly what you say, a, a way for us to bridge gaps, but also me lean on the the expertise of a colleague that you know I, I just don't have <laughs> so that the experience can be richer for the student. Yeah, so I have actually begun conversations with one of my colleagues in history um, who I have a very good relationship with about possibly teaching big history as an interdisciplinary course, mm -hmm. not for next year, but for possibly the year after. Yeah. And and for a variety of reasons, you know, I came about it in the middle of the year and we are in, in the midst of embarking on a fairly massive uh, change to our schedule mm -hmm. um, to, to the point where when I had this idea, I was like, this is a good idea. Nobody is going to have the bandwidth to listen to me for this change or, you know, yeah. like the idea of teaching, adding this new elective in with all of the other changes in there. But also I need to wrap my head around it as well about this type of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the interesting conversations that we've had is, you know, we pop into each other's classes and we sort of see the type of work. Um, we always have this this conversation. He comes in and my students are always like at lab benches and working through activities and like they're just, they're always actively working in small groups. Mm -hmm. And when I walk into his group, they're almost always in a big circle, actively having a large class discussion. Mm -hmm. And so the physical nature with which we have students interact with one another looks very different because we have different skills that we bring to it. And we've been talking about this as, you know, sort of observations about what we each will bring to to the course in in this as we're, you know, if we were to collaborate, we realize that there's things that both of us will know and things that both of us will not know. Mm -hmm. And and how, and just sort of being open about our individual uh, like at least my my personal deficiencies uh, in terms of I don't run whole class discussions in a circle. Um, I don't know what that would look like. Um, that just isn't something that's part of my regular practice. Yeah. So as we we dive into this this big history, um, give me a. I know this is it's a it's the history of you know what, fifteen billion years. Mm -hmm. So um, <laughs> how do you arc the fifteen billion year curriculum uh, throughout the year? Is it a two trimester? Is it a whole year? What do you what yeah. do you do to get through this course? Um, you know, when I first proposed it, I thought I might be fortunate to get one or two trimesters to get it approved. And and when it went to, because like you just described, it's getting any new course proposed and approved mm -hmm. is a, is a multi-year process. And when it went through, you know, the committee of department chairs and, and other um, interested individuals, the, they're like, no, it should be a year long. And so we we start with you know, what is big history and the Big Bang in in August when we begin the school year and we march off a timeline of, you know, the history of the universe on a football field to get them started, which is similar to something that I have students do in my biology classes, you know, the history of the earth on a football field. And so far as, as a first year course, we've tried to stick to what the Big History Project website 
outlines, which is, you know, start off with the Big Bang and then the formation of stars and more complex elements and then move into how solar systems and, and planetary systems, you know, came to be. And then from there, you know, development of life on, on planet Earth, uh, the evolution of early humans, agriculture and civilization. Right now, we're studying expansion and interconnection. Um, we're going to be talking about the transmission of disease globally with smallpox and bubonic plague through the mm -hmm. history of human humanity. Um, and then we'll finish up with acceleration and, and how things get faster and faster in, in our experience. Um, and then we'll end the year with students positing about what might the next threshold look like? What might the next set of ingredients and Goldilocks conditions be to, to change um, existence, not just our own, but the world and the universe is, you know, in the future. It's It's been good. It's been really rewarding. I think that we're definitely going to make changes for how we present the curriculum next year. Um, we teach this course to, um, we've got 17 seniors. Um, and so they're all really great students. They're all really strong. And the Big History Project website is a wonderful website. And it's a wonderful resource. The community is really robust. But it's presented as, hey, here's a way that you could teach this class at any level to high school students. Mm -hmm. And the materials provided on the website are great because you can download readings at, at different reading levels. Um, yeah. But our student population, um, you know, I teach at a, a pre-K through 12 independent day school in Dallas, Texas. I've got some really amazing students and and they they struggle with some of the work from the Big History Project because they feel it's rudimentary. Um, mm. And so we've been supplementing with chapters here and there, like um, Sean Carroll's Remarkable Creatures, and, and taking chapters out of that, and Neil deGrasse Tyson's Astrophysics for People in a Hurry, um, and supplementing <laughs> with things that are appropriately challenging for our students, which I think is a challenge for every teacher, right? Finding yeah. what is the right way to talk about something with your own unique student population. So... You know, we know that our class is going to look different next year, and we've just started the process of grappling with that, and, and what do we want to do, and how do we want to change it, um, but it's been good. Yeah, that's that's an interesting conversation, because that's actually something that we've discussed about, like, who would take the course that we rolled out, mm -hmm. and what would it look like, and immediately, like, I as soon as you said it, the idea that it's actually two separate courses and people could sign up for either a history course or a science course is a really is something I hadn't even thought of as a as a structure. So that was that was great for me to hear. But we would think it'd probably be a junior senior elective in our school just based off the way our school structured. Mm -hmm. And but I, we don't know who would sign up for it. Yeah. So like I currently teach some honors and some AP level classes. Um, my colleague also teaches some honors level courses to younger students. So we have sort of a, a demographic. We have an audience that I think if the two of us were teaching a course, there would be a natural audience of kids who had already had us as freshmen, sophomores, mm -hmm. who would want to take a course that we both taught. But we also would like to have something that is unique and diverse and broad that lots of students could access as a curriculum. Yeah. Um, and so deciding sort of how we want to pitch this course 
is been an interesting discussion and challenge and how big of a course or small of a course we wanted to try to teach is also an interesting dilemma as well. Like if this is a full year course and we're, we have a bunch of honors and AP students, are they even going to fit it into their schedule? Right. Cause they're, cause they're already taking, you know, as juniors, they're taking AP us history and AP biology. And then as seniors, they're taking, you know, AP physics and like they're the number of periods they have in a day is finite. Like they cannot take more than a certain amount. So it's been an interesting discussion about how to, how to provide the opportunity for students to take an interesting course, but also figure out how to pitch that course at a level that is accessible to enough students who are interested. I mean, I think that's really what I want is I want the students who are interested to take it. Um, but I want to probably have that, you know, scope where there it's accessible to more than just our traditional honors and AP students. Mm -hmm. And for, for my experience, you know, when I thought of this class, one of the, the challenges that we face, um, as a department is we want to offer, you know, complex, rigorous, high level science courses, um, because we have a student demographic that, that demands them and wants them and hoovers them up and and loves them. Mm -hmm. But then we have students who are being told, that either through graduation requirements or college application recommendations, you know, it's your senior year, you need to make sure that you have a year of science. And, and that might be a student who's not super enthusiastic about science and isn't planning on taking, you know, AP Physics C or AP Chemistry their senior year. And so we want to offer strong, robust courses that aren't just science at a less rigorous level. And, and so when I thought of this course, I was like, hey, this, is, this would be a great way to bring some of those students who see themselves as English kids, history kids, back into our science classrooms. And um, those kids who see themselves as scientists and um, who, who you know, know that they're going to pursue STEM, at least you know, through college, a way to get them back into a history class that they're excited and interesting and engaged in. And yeah, it's that student population is a trick because, you know, we've got students who are, you know, in their fourth AP science class, right. Um, who are taking yeah. the class and we have students who are like, I barely remember, you know, ninth grade chemistry because I've been focused on, X, Y, or Z that hasn't been in the science classroom. And so it's been fun to listen to them and have them bring their perspective into the class, listening to <laughs> students who were taking or had previously taken AP environmental science, teach their peers in small groups about plate tectonics and um, subduction and different types of faults because they had learned that in a previous class, um, share that knowledge and expertise with their peers who hadn't had that experience. That's been really a fun thing to watch. Yeah. All right. You've just invigorated me and excited me. I'll, I'll start those conversations back up yep. again. Um, <laughs> uh, figure there. All right. So uh, we'll transition to one of your other hats. Uh, we'll go into AP land, which I think is probably the reason we know each other, mm -hmm. um, not because of your big history. But um, uh, I had recorded with uh, our common friend Lee Ferguson a couple years yeah. ago, and she told me about starting this Dallas-Fort Worth AP biology professional learning community. And recently, I have been involved in some conversations with some teachers in Massachusetts, Todd Ryan, Michael Murray, who are talking about, wouldn't it be great uh, to have a community like that in Massachusetts? Yeah. Um, and like, how about putting something like 
that together. So you are a part of this community yeah. that's that been around for what now several years um, and meets a couple times a year, right? I don't even remember exactly how long we've been meeting, but I can remember <laughs> sitting in a social lounge in in Kansas City one year, meeting Lee Ferguson, and and being really. Um, blown away by her energy, enthusiasm, and expertise, and and talking about yeah, we should we should do something. And um, Lee is the kind of person who um, follows through in a way that I might not always. And so she she got it started. And I can remember her driving me. Um, I don't know that my car was functioning at the time. Um, driving me to um, the. Fort Worth Botanical Gardens for the first meeting and, you know, helping set, set things up in the room. And I think there was a publisher there that first year. It was all very, very um, fancy. And being able to just sit in a room and talk with peers and professionals and, and without too much of an agenda, being able to say, you know, what works, what doesn't work. It's been really rewarding. Um, I also think that, you know, my involvement, uh, you know, one of the challenges early on was where are we going to meet? And and my school is, is really great that, hey, yeah, we're going to have a whole bunch of strangers on campus this this Sunday, this Saturday. They had no problem with that. And, and using classroom space was easy. And so um, after that first meeting out in Fort Worth, there were a couple of, of iterations of it that met at my school at Green Hill. Um, and now it's grown and, you know, we, we hop from school to school to school as people are able to to volunteer their their school space and time but being able to interact with people and and provide some expertise and being able to sit down with new ap biology teachers who mm. i can remember how overwhelmed i was when i started and provide a, a venue for them to hear people who've gone through the experience themselves say it's all right it's going to be it's going to be fine you don't have to cover everything cuz it's not about coverage it's as uh, lee says it's it's more about uncovering material it's uncovering science practices um and and how to think and approach observations and data you know and here's one way that here's one thing that works in my classroom or to be able to share expertise from the reading and you know here is how these questions were scored as you know, at the reading, we have a night where it's a, a debrief and, you know, mm -hmm. an overview of the questions are provided to, you know, the, the people in attendance and an overview of the rubrics and what parts, what points were easily earned and what points were more challenging for students to earn. Being able to, you know, recreate that for our colleagues here in, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and even beyond, because sometimes I think we've had some people drive in um, from pretty <laughs> far out. Yeah. It's been a lot of fun. Um, I haven't always attended and it hasn't, you know, always met, you know, as frequently as we might like, but when it does meet, it's been cool. Yeah. And so you're, you're a couple times a year is sort of sounds like what it, it ends up being like uh, two or three times a year. Most years is the general goal. It sounds the goal like. is I think three. Um, you know, I think yeah. our goal is once in the fall, once in the spring, like early spring, late winter, and then maybe once in the summer. Um, oh. And hmm. reality, I think, has it turn out to be more like one or two times a year. Uh, yeah. Just because 
things fall through or people struggle with, you know, stuff outside of the classroom and being able to offer space or time to, to get it going. Um, so. I think logistically it's, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's always hard. I, I was part of a, a group who met in, in central mass for AP biology years when I started teaching AP and it was about three or four years um, where a, a university space was provided to us. And there was a outreach person from that group who hosted and they would send out the meetings and they tried to meet like two to three times a year. And I think the last two meetings I went to literally one of them got canceled because I was like driving there and I showed up and it had gotten canceled earlier in the day and I just hadn't seen it that had been canceled. And then the other one I showed up and it was me and one other teacher. And, and that was just a sort of thing speaks to the logistics of trying to meet, particularly during the school year as a group of teachers. And we weren't doing Sundays. We were trying to do it in some afternoons. Uh, like it was like a Thursday afternoon or something like that. And it's just, it's hard for people to carve out the time it is. Uh, to do it. We we also were a fairly small group and we didn't have a great ability to, I think that was the other thing. There was a larger community we could have served, but we had a really hard time communicating that out. Mm-hmm. Um, there should have been more people who knew about us and went there. Uh, and as I said, I just sort of joined this as a new AP teacher for like my first, you know, three, four years of, of teaching. Um, so I don't even know the long history of that particular group. But um, I, I definitely think there's an appetite for having a meeting a couple of times a year, uh, both for the veteran teachers mm-hmm. who get on an island um, and get like a little burned out because they're just they're an AP teacher. They're the only AP teacher in their building. Sometimes they're the only biology teacher or one of only two biology teachers and they have nobody to bounce ideas off right. of and they need it. And then, as you said, the new teachers getting through a year in your first and second year of teaching AP is sometimes uh, just a chore to, to manage yourself to get to through the year. And you feel very, uh, feel very incompetent, I think is the best way to describe it. uh, When you take on a course like this the first time, even though you're doing a much better job than you perceive. Right. So um, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess my question would be if you had any advice to like, how, what are, what are structures for meetings that work? Like if we were to get a group of, you know, I got a group of a dozen people who are interested, uh, we can manage to find a space and a date. Um, what are kinds of structures that help people get together? Like, is there a length of time? Is there a, is there a type of agenda or what, what sort of works for, uh, when you guys want to get together? For us, what, what has worked is, you know, um, a longer period of time on a Saturday, on a Sunday, so that people can drop in as they are able, right? Um, you know, we have times when people show up a couple of hours late because they had their kid had a soccer game, right? Um, and so rather than writing the whole thing off, well, I'll just I'll just show up later. Um, or people who have to leave after, you know, when we break for lunch. I think that early on we we tried to plan meals in or say, hey, we'll order. And more recently, it's just been, we'll meet and talk until about noon, and then maybe we'll all go together to a restaurant or we'll um, all break for an hour, an hour and a half, and go have lunch and then come back. And that's been helpful for people who are like, you know what, I need to run to the store and do a couple of errands, and then I'll come back after the lunch break. Um, That's been helpful. I think that having different expectations for when we have meetings at different times of the year. So 
whether it's a meeting in the summer, we once had, I'm not sure if you're familiar with, with Israel Solon, who works with ETS now, um, but he was mm -hmm. formerly the AP biology teacher at Greenhill. Um, and, and he's really how I got connected with AP biology reading. And, 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 you know, I took over his classroom when he went from Greenhill to ETS and he still got family in the Dallas Fort Worth area. And so it just turned out that he was going to be in town one weekend when we were going to be meeting. I mean, I think that meeting was on, on a college or a university campus like you, you described, you know, and so in having a meeting that's either in the summer or in the fall, that's a little bit of debrief about the previous year's exam and, and how the student population as a whole fared um, and what, you know, science practices or learning objectives were underpinning the specific questions that were asked for free response and how to present them in your classroom without teaching to the test, right? Um, you know, there was a, a question a couple of years ago that dealt with DNA moving through an electric field, and it used a technique that I had never heard about. But <laughs> teaching in general properties of DNA, um, electric fields, electrophoresis, should prepare students for that and and a a new teacher might think oh i have to teach this technique no we have to teach about biology in general biotechnology um, more specifically electrophoresis is really helpful to get students prepared for questions that might initially seem foreign to them but really they they do understand it um so having a meeting you know whether it's in the summer after the reading um, and you can get some readers there who've been to the reading debrief or in the fall to look back, that's helpful. Having, I think, a meeting that's, you know, late winter, early spring, where you talk about test prep and exam prep, because that's something that a lot of teachers are anxious about because a lot of their students are anxious about it. Structuring what you're going to do in the the PLC meetings to where you are in the year. Um, so it's relevant. Um, I remember a couple mm -hmm. years ago, um, we had a meeting in the fall that was, um, you know, half pseudo debrief and half here are a bunch of little manipulatives and how can you incorporate modeling into your classroom? And some teachers left saying, yes, I'm going to, you know, port these specific models that were presented into my own classroom. And other people who are like, now I have a reconceptualization of what a model is and can look at modeling in a different way because um, I think a lot of teachers, new teachers, um, younger teachers see a model as a physical manipulative when a model can be so much more. It's, it's a concept. It's a way to represent the way the world actually works. And though it's often flawed and inaccurate, it's better than nothing. And so, you know, I think that's helpful. Yeah. yeah. I, I remember talking to Paul Anderson specifically, and he said he, almost everybody seems to have as their initial idea of a model is craft time. Mm -hmm. Like you need to have a bunch of crafts and people have to build something physically and they have to have Play-Doh and pipe cleaners and that sort of thing. And models are just having an opportunity for people to take the, how the thing works in their mm -hmm. head and externalize it in some way. Yeah. And that could be, that doesn't have to be, that could be on paper. It could be a computer model. It could be a variety of things, but it doesn't have to mean crafting. Yeah. And, you know, for my own 
my own students, I, I, I try to help them break out of that mold of a model is crafting, a model is Play-Doh, a model is, you know, building a physical representation of a cell. You know, I, I ask them to think about, you know, the colloquial popular use of the word model. And we talk about fashion and fashion models and how they're not representative of real people's bodies, right? Um, it's an idealization and an idealization that um, maybe even the fashion models themselves might not feel like they live up to and how, you know, we can use other ways to represent the human body and then talking about, okay, and here are some advertisements that for products that use non-standard models that represent the system in a little bit of a different way. And, and my students are like, oh, okay. So not all model, you know, there is no perfect model. We might be presented with an idealization, but that idealization um, often has some things that aren't as accurate as we might like. And then taking that into the science classroom and saying, all right, now what are the different ways we can model a population? Right, we we we're probably not going to model a population by making a thousand different rabbit Play-Doh pieces, right? <laughs> um, it it yeah. might be easier to talk about growth rate and logistic curves and exponential growth, and this is a different way to model that system. Yeah, this is the point at which I stop taking show notes and I just start making curriculum notes um, <laughs> because I just finished a protein project with my students that involved a model building component. And when we first started doing this project, it basically meant pulling out pipe cleaners and kids would build the alpha helices and the beta sheets and they would make a color key and they would make some disulfide bonds. And the idea was that they would build a model and they would use that model in their explanation of structure and function for this particular protein, along with a bunch of other aspects of the protein um, that they did some research on. But in the last couple of years, I have, a, have had a group of students who want to 3D print their proteins. Absolutely. And so, and that's been growing. And so it went to like, I think I had one like three or four years ago, I had a one kid printed it and then nobody the next year. And then last year I had a couple of kids. And this year I think I had three, maybe three out of the 10 projects were 3D printed. But the funny thing is the kids who don't 3D print seem to feel like they're at this massive disadvantage, like that somehow mm -hmm. the people who are printing have it easier. Not, not not understanding that going into 3D printing involves a lot of problem solving and figuring out how to do it. And then I put some demands on the 3D printed models to say, all right, once you 3D print this, you still have to be able to translate this physical model that you've printed and be able to explain the structure and function. So maybe you need to add a color coding after the fact or, you know, something else. And it's it's been an interesting discussion about how the the labor involved in creating the model students view the student perception is the labor that goes into building the model is the modeling work and not the explaining part of the model. Um, right. And so it's been part of my, I, I've learned from my students communication about how I need to frame what modeling is as it pertains to this particular project. Yeah. And that, that whole idea of, you know, modeling and 3d printing is one of the reasons I'm so excited to go to, um, you know, I've heard great things about, the Milwaukee School of Engineering Center for Biomolecular Modeling Summer Workshop. You know, I've known people who've gone in the past, and I'm, I'm really excited about being able to attend this summer. And mm -hmm. then we've got a, a, a an engineering 
classroom, um, a computer science engineering classroom, and, and the kids in there, you know, they are involved in robotics competitions, but they've got the 3D printers going all the time. And I'm like, I, I, could, I could use those to, to make or have students make models, physical representations of some of the things we're talking about so that we can then better explain how they interact. Mm -hmm. um, but it is that explanation component. That's why we build models so we can talk about them to other people and communicate them to other people. Um, yeah. And that's, you're right. That's the hard part. That's the, that's the reason you want to do it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, ironically going, cycling back my lab partner all last summer, at the MSOE was Le was Lee. Um, Lee and I yeah. <laughs> sat in the back corner, <laughs> chatting and talking. And most of the most of the time that I was taking side notes was because Lee was sitting next to me, saying, "Well, I see how I would use this in the classroom here," and I'd be like, "Oh, I see how I'd use this in the classroom here," and looking up stuff and making side notes about having you know her just sit next to me so that we could chat. And I took so many ideas both from the workshop itself. And I think it's a, it's a great workshop and it's awesome that you're doing it because I, I thought it was a fantastic week for me last summer, but also the interaction you get with colleagues while you're there. So mm -hmm. yeah. You can yeah. Um, I know a couple of people who are going to be going this summer and I'm, I'm excited to spend more time with them, mm -hmm. but also excited to meet some new people and, and get some new ideas. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure I'm going to get those new ideas from whoever I'm, I'm interacting with, whether I've met them before or not, but yeah, it should be a, a not only a, a fun time, but also a really an opportunity for growth for me. Yeah, I've taken I I've used so much that I got from last summer. So yeah, that was Excellent. definitely a gr great time. All right, so uh, the last sort of topic of uh, about you that I was so interested, and I'm not surprised that you did it, um, but I don't know that I knew that you had been an item writer in both multiple choice and in. Uh, free response questions over the past few years. So uh, as somebody who has teaches students and I use the questions in my own classroom and I was a reader uh, and I will be a reader again this year, what's the process for making these? <laughs> you know, I, it's, um, I don't want to overstate my involvement in that. You know, I got involved in item writing when my former colleague Israel um, that I mentioned before he was talking with somebody at ETS because they were working on developing or they needed more items for the Texas examination of educator standards, mm -hmm. you know, the, the test that Texas uses to certify teachers. And so they sent me, hey, would you be willing to write five questions? And they should be on, you know, these different broad topics. Um, and that's how I got involved. Um, and I've contributed multiple choice questions. Um, but to my recollection, I, I don't remember ever seeing one on an exam. Um, and that may be more a factor of my faulty recollection. But it may also be that I, I don't know that I write, you know, really <laughs> great questions. Um, I, I like to, I would hope that I do. But, you know, it's, it's kind of, you, you receive, could you write on these particular learning objectives? And there have been times when I've been asked, you know, just, just write us five questions. I don't, I think there's a progression in item writing where if you become consistent and good at it, then they start to ask you to contribute, maybe writing, you know, writing questions for question sets, mm. you know, where there might be one longer stimulus that might involve some data or graphs and explanation followed up by like four or five questions. You know, I've never, never been asked to write one of those. 
And I know that a couple of years ago, they started soliciting, you know, some free response stimulus um, from the from people outside of the test development committee. You know, and so I've sent things like that off, and I really have. It, it feels at times a little bit like a black hole mm-hmm. um, because I, I I send it off, and I know that whatever questions I write, I'm not supposed to use in my own classroom mm-hmm. for the the very, you know, the the reason that well, what if they do a, appear on an exam in the future, and my students happen to take that exam, and so I just generally do my best to write a question that's got one correct and like for a multiple choice you know one correct answer a couple of good distractors that probe misconceptions surrounding the the learning objective of the science practice um and send them off <laughs> and then don't really know what happens to them next knowing the people and 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 trusting the people who work at ETS i i, I have confidence that you know, they're bringing all those questions in together and evaluating them and tossing some out and flagging others for, you know, potential inclusion and tweaking and twisting and doing what they need to do to, to produce a test that is as reliable as is possible um, that, you know, addresses the curriculum framework as well as, it, as any single three-hour measure can. So it's fun. I think to do, but it's also a little bit of a challenge to carve out the time and say, you know what, I I need to read, take my broader scientific reading, you know, looking at journal articles or things like that, and translate that into a a new question. Hmm. Um, and the time it takes to write it and rewrite it, you know, I spend a lot more time doing that than I would do for my own questions in my own classroom because I can always tweak my questions that I write for my students in my classroom year after year after year after year yeah. right like I can say hey this question was missed at a significantly high percentage and it's not because we didn't cover it in class it's because I wrote a crappy question um, and how can I improve it and and I don't have we don't have that oppor- opportunity to to do that with items that are written for the, for the AP biology exam I would think you're flexing some muscles or you're maybe developing some muscles by going through that process that do help you for the regular classroom work. Uh, I think that would, to me, that would be like, I could see some frustration in, you know, as you said, throwing it in the black hole, but I also can see the, the exercise itself. I, cause I know this year in particular, I've been doing a lot of using Brittany Franskoviak's uh, formative essay model where she basically yeah. writes short FRQs and she uses those as homeworks. And um, I've stolen that model and I have my students pick basically one of those a month. Um, and I give them basically an FRQ on every single topic that we address all year long. And for a lot of them, I just steal Britney's um, because because <laughs> I, I can and they're good. Yeah. She shares. Yeah. And she shared them and they're great and they're they're super useful. But what I found particularly like this time of year, I'm working on a particular storyline. And, you know, when you have a really hard, firm, set out storyline you want, and you look at the FRQs, like the group of FRQs for this particular set, I wanted, I needed them to be about certain topics. I needed them to fit into my storyline. And so I had to, 
I ended up having to write almost all of them for this last module that we're getting into. It's an interesting like struggle to then have to then come up with, all right, what is the what is the commonality that I see in this really well crafted question about this topic that happens to be about, you know, fish speciation. And now, but I'm doing this virus storyline. How do right. I what's what is the the parallel? What is the analog? All right, what is the data that I want to pull out? What is the what is the the phenomena that I want to use to start this? And then how do I want to shape the prompt? How is it similar? How is it different? And the mental exercise of doing that, um, I find has made me so much better at explaining the AP questions when mm-hmm. students ask me questions after a test and they're like, well, but why, you know, why is this the requirement or why, why is the question framed this way? Because I've worked that in my own mind, getting into the, the frame of translating the standards into questions, I feel like right. I'm so much better at doing it now than I was yeah. a year ago. Yeah. And, and to, you know, that's why whenever I encounter somebody who is an AP teacher and is not or has not had experience as an AP reader, I, I encourage them to go because the you're right. You were just describing the process that goes into question writing. Um, and I think that if you're not writing robust questions for inclusion in your own classroom, and if you're not writing um, or writing robust questions for inclusion on the exam, then at the very least, going and seeing, all right, here is how it's worked on the back end and and knowing about how the question will be scored then might lead you to back your way into how was this question written what is it that this question is asking to then allow the individual classroom teacher who's had that experience to say okay now when i want to write a question um, it's not just slap something down on paper but what am I going to be assessing? You know, what is the the learning objective, the essential knowledge, the learning, the the science practice that I want to see my students address, and what will be a sufficient approach or interaction with those science practices and learning objectives, in which the student will earn the point. So that way, then you can explain, as you described to your own students in your classroom, okay, well, this is what the question was asking you to do. And here is what I see you did, and, and and here's the disconnect, or here's how you did it really well. Is helpful. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we've talked about a lot of stuff that's gone into your class. What are you excited for in the years to come? What are you looking forward to? I'm looking forward to our transition to to physics first at my own school. Mm-hmm. Um, I've I've long felt that teaching biology to high school students as a as a first science um, doesn't make much sense to me. And I've, I've often um, advocated for, at my own school, teaching it in a, in a different way. Um, when I started at Green Hill 20 years ago, you know, we were a, a, a relatively standard biology, chemistry, physics school. And there was a point in time when we were reflecting on that and asking, is this the way, the best way to do it? And is there, are there other ways to do it? And, you know, we, we've seriously probed the idea of physics first. Um, but at that point in time, we just didn't have the expertise as a science department to teach physics for 
two years and no biology for two years. And, you know, we were able to bridge, do, we attempted a, an integrated science curriculum for, you know, freshmen and sophomores that combined chemistry and biology. Um, and for logistical reasons, we had to walk away from that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, what do you do with a sophomore who transfers in and has had biology but not chemistry or has had chemistry but not biology? Um, yeah. And so we came out of that integrated science curriculum saying, well, now we can very easily teach chemistry to freshmen and biology to sophomores. And having taught before that and after that at my school, you know, I can, I can see how that really impacts what I'm able to do with students in the biology classroom. When students have a more robust understanding of covalent bonds, ionic bonds, um, chemical reactions, energy that goes into those chemical reactions and, and comes out of them. It does change what I can do in my biology classroom, and I'm really looking forward to, in time, teaching students who have studied physics and then chemistry and then are in my biology classroom, um, in our biology classrooms. That's something I'm looking forward to. Yeah. I think that, you know, it'll, it'll be a challenge because I'll have to put my chemistry hat on in two years and be a chemistry teacher <laughs> for a year, but that'll be good for me um, because... It'll flex muscles, to borrow a phrase from you earlier, that I haven't used in a while. And it will also give me a, a more robust understanding of what the biology students who are in the junior course will have gone through and will have taken. Um, so that's yeah. something I'm looking forward to. Yeah, I, I haven't taught chemistry myself in, gosh, it's probably been about a dozen years now, but I always enjoyed teaching chemistry. There's an internal logic to teaching chemistry that I always found. And I, I do agree, and, and I see it with my AP students, my AP students who have had chemistry before, I frequently tell them, okay, so when we had you the first time, these are the things we lied and like lied about and oversimplified. Now, here's really what's going on um, right. and getting into the energy, the, you know, the redox and the, like... Teaching photosynthesis when students don't know redox is like, you know, it's a bunch of hand waving. Yeah, um, it is. <laughs> so. um, but when they understand, you know, the difference between ground state and excited state and yeah. they, you know, realize that electronegativity is a thing, <laughs> it, it really does make what we can do as biology teachers more robust. And so I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. All right. So when you are not teaching, I don't know how, that you have any time, um, but <laughs> when you're not teaching, what do you like to do? Um, you know, right now I am so wonderfully wrapped up in in being a father. Um, I've got a, a, a daughter that just turned two hmm. and it's really great. I'm fortunate in, in so many ways. And, and one of the ways that I'm fortunate is that Green Hill um, has a, a daycare center on campus and we live across the street from from school so you know dropping her off in the morning or you know, we have a, a like a 20 minute break between our second and our third periods which happens to coincide with when her and her toddler friends are being taken around campus um in the you know <laughs> six kid stroller and yep. i get to walk around campus with her that's been a a, a really rewarding um, journey for me. You know, prior to to her arriving on the scene, you know, I I, I coached cross country and lacrosse, and I, I really want to get back into that at some point in the future. And I thought about and talked to people about coaching lacrosse again this spring, 
um, since I've taken a break for a couple of years now. now. Logistically, it just didn't work out for for me this year, or I think the needs of the team. But you know, I miss that. Yeah, and yeah. I I have a when I'm not in the classroom, um, I, I love to play uh, Dungeons and Dragons, and we've got a group of people who we play you know, every Friday night on campus. And it used to be a majority of the science department and some people have stepped away or, or moved to other schools or whatnot. But um, we talk about it as, you know, a, uh, a team building activity that we do. <laughs> and so, now it's interdisciplinary. And now it's interdisciplinary. We've uh, <laughs> actually, I was running a group last year that had, you know, lower school and middle school and upper school teachers in it that had people that weren't from the sciences. Um, a history teacher um, was involved and, and a middle school science teacher and a lower school science teacher. So that's something I spend my time on when I'm not in the classroom as well. Yeah. You get the, you can get the Kansas folks down. So I feel like they have a group too. Actually yeah. at, at the reading I've run a game. I did it two years in a row and like we, we spent one night, playing two years ago and then the next year we picked another night and we picked up where we had left off a year earlier um and i was going to do it a third year in a row with the same people and the same characters but i was just a little too too busy with being assistant chief reader this past year for the first time so i think that's going to have to wait for a while It's funny. It's like a hidden community. I didn't realize was in the AP read community. Uh, yeah, but... well, you know, there's there's not that many of us. There's only so many people you can fit into one hotel room to play D and D. Yeah, it's kind of like me and the runners. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I ran, I run with like different people all the time, like almost every morning. Yeah. Uh, so or Desi every other day, and then other people all the other days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. Uh, so before we get to picks of the episode, do you have any questions for me? Yeah, so um, you know, you've described this podcast as a, a wonderful, you know, professional development for you. Mm-hmm. What are a couple like? Could you put together a a top three or a top five, you know, best of nuggets that you've taken from this podcast um, and incorporated into your own classroom? Oh gosh, that's it's so hard because I've stolen so many things from so many people. Yeah, I don't know if I have a top group, and I'm actually also in the middle a little bit of releasing that. So uh, my last episode was the my homework compilation episode, mm-hmm. where I talked to this is like total cheating because I talked to eight people on that right. episode, but that was like that was sort of a culmination of me coming back to a bunch of different people who I had talked to about different practices, and then I asked those same that same group of people, like three different questions. Mm-hmm. And because I did that, I already sort of had a, an inkling of where they were on those topics, but I didn't, I wanted to sort of put them all in one spot. Right. So um, I would say my number one sort of takeaway uh, has been the the networking building that I've done in terms of when I have a question about something, um, I have this like really unfair network that most people don't necessarily have. Right. Because like if I want to do something and I want to do something that has to do with a computer simulation mm-hmm. um, and it's like I, I just like I can text John Darko John, and just yep. say, like, hey, John, I'm looking at your model and I'm looking at your sheet here and th- and I can immediately get that or um, like that. It happened when I was going to NABT 
two years ago when I was going to St. Louis and I was working on putting together a, a lab that was going to use fast plants and claim evidence reasoning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had Lee's a handout that was in a shared folder. And so again, I'm, you know, I'm messaging Lee and like, Lee, explain to me what you do here. What do you order? What do you do that? So the biggest takeaway for me is uh, we are in an enormously generous community, Mm -hmm. but I am somebody who prefers to deal with people one-on-one as opposed to like, there are people who post in the, the communities and all that stuff and they get phenomenal responses from this great wealth of people. My my mental processes don't really work that way. I like to have a broad filter, like a broad idea, and then I filter down, and then I get some very specific questions, and I want to talk to somebody who knows about that detail. And so that's sort of been my biggest takeaway is I've built myself a network that allows me to do that pretty readily. Yeah. And then the other couple of things that I've gotten is, uh, you know, like I, I mentioned Brittany Franskoviak, like her idea about... Uh, you know, how she does her formative assessments and how she works with writing. It made so much sense to me, but was so radically different from what I was doing at the time. And that's a good example of me becoming jealous of somebody else's practice, but then being provided a resource that I could borrow and get out of my comfort zone with. And so I've learned to really get out of my comfort zone because I trust the resources of the people who I talk to because it's not a it's not a quick hit it's not like a oh I do this thing here's the resource it's here's this thing let's talk for 25 30 minutes about this thing that I do and so I have a really deep understanding of the resources I get now from people and I think it's provided me the ability to understand how to have a deep enough conversation with somebody who's sharing a resource so that I not only just get the resource, but I get the resource and I now know how it's going to fall into my practice um, or how I could possibly implement it. And then the other thing I would say um, as we're approaching the read is um, I'm going to go to the read for a second time. And I would have never gone to the read if I hadn't talked to Jen and she basically made me (laughs) apply to go to the read. Like the reality is I would have never gone to the read if that, like at least not last year. Um, And so this, the show has led me into that community as well, where I've met a lot of people who, who've provided me opportunities to, to go to professional opportunities um, because of that. Well, and I think, you know, that your, your first takeaway and even this, that third one you just mentioned, they're, they're consistent with a theme that's been through this whole episode, right? Like we were talking earlier about collaborating with other teachers that are outside your department, right? Mm-hmm. And, and working with other people. And then we spent time talking about professional learning communities, PLCs, and, and setting them up. And we've talked about, you know, attending the reading and mentioned the the online communities that are are available to us and i think the one of the things that is really impactful to a lot of teachers is making that network building that network that you described that you know we we talk with other people and we interact with other people and i see it you know like i recognize that now and the value of it for me as a teacher I have for a longer period of time recognized the need for that in my students. You shouldn't just sit at your own desk and do your own work and take your own notes and turn in your own assignments. You should interact with other people and, you know, work in small groups and bounce ideas off one another. Um, And I think that as a teacher, I, I 
required that and demanded that of my students, but wasn't initially as a teacher doing that for myself. And I can see, just like you describe, my own practice becoming more robust the more I interact with other teachers and other professionals, regardless of the venue. You know, and so there are some people who are like, I, I can't get away and get to the reading because I'm still in school and my administration won't ever let me go. All right, well, then get a PLC or become more involved mm -hmm. in the online communities or step out of your classroom and into somebody else's classroom. You know, it's those connections that get our brains thinking in different ways and get us seeing things from different angles and then help our students interact with the material in a different way, um, which is only going to be for the good. Yeah, sort of building off of that, I, I the mindset of what I think a teacher is today, and I mentioned this earlier when you were bringing up Ken Moyer and, you know, sort of the habits of mind. When I started teaching, I thought the teacher had to be the expert in the room. And the role of students was to build like sort of a degree of expertise and show that expertise. Mm -hmm. And now I view myself as I am the lead learner in the room and everybody in the room is learning right. and, and I want to see their learning and I want them to see my learning. And as I've been making the shift from the model of expertise to the model of modeling learning, I've asked questions about the way I structure my classroom am I rewarding expertise of knowledge or am I rewarding like the, the process of learning? And is that reflected in the things I ask my students to do? Do I, does that reflect, does my classroom reflect that philosophy that I have that this is a space of learning as opposed to a space of expertise? Mm. And I think when I do the show, it's, you know, at times complete, I, I'm, I don't know. I don't know anything about big history. How do you do this thing? Like, mm -hmm. like I want to tell me, may, let me learn about this thing that I don't know anything about. I, I think it's allowed me to change the way I sort of just approach the world so that I hope my students, and I do think my students generally view me as a person of expertise. Like I'm a lion in my building. I've been there for almost 20 years. I teach AP biology. People view me as an expert in that building. Mm -hmm. But I don't want the structure of my classroom to reinforce that. I want the structure of my classroom to reinforce that I'm a learner in here. And the way I speak should reflect that. And right. they should understand from my modeling that we're all learning all of the time. Um, and so I try to engage in practices that, that help me stay in that mindset. Absolutely. All right. That was a great one. A good question. I totally, I totally sidestepped it and then said <laughs> broad platitudes. All right. There you go. All right. So now we're at picks of the episode. Barry, what is your pick of the episode? Well, I think, you know, to build off of what you just said, modeling learning, one of the things that I would recommend is that people just go and read broadly. I love reading the New York Times. I love thinking about, you know, what are people writing about in the popular media and whether that's in a periodical like the New York Times or a website or even, you know, just books that are being published, right? Works that come out like Serengeti Rules or Remarkable Creatures or Astrophysics for People in a Hurry or, you know, just read broadly and then take that reading and bring it into your classroom. Um, and even more important than the New York Times, um, I can't tell you how many times I've brought in um, articles from um, Scientific American. You know, I love this lesson that I do um, with my students when we study ecology, where I share articles about resource depletion um, from Scientific American. And like you said a moment ago, make the students the experts and have them be the learners. Um, and um, have, you know, student assign 
three different articles to three different groups, one on sulfur depletion and one on nitrogen depletion and one on water depletion in and how it affects agriculture and, and, and ecology. And then kind of twisting off of, you know, getting kids out of small groups, like you said, with your colleague who's a, a history teacher, getting them all in one big circle and talking about, all right, what are the commonalities between all of these things? And I wouldn't be able to do that lesson, which my students say is impactful, um, if I didn't broadly read outside of the classroom, um, if I didn't constantly look for other things. Um, and maybe it's a scientific journal article, maybe it's something that's a little bit more accessible to the, the general population like New York Times or Scientific American, or maybe it's a, a deeper dive via a, a book, but just read, read, read. <laughs> All right. Well, you went read, read, read. I'm going to go listen, listen, listen. Okay. Um, so um, I actually picked two podcasts, which I think sort of exemplify the the lifelong learner, but starting at a very young age. Mm -hmm. So um, I have two podcasts that are predominantly run by young people. Yes. Uh, Science is Funny, which is a podcast by nine-year-old Avery and Skipper. And I'm pretty sure that Skipper is uh, Avery's grandfather. And they host this podcast about science technology and they say sometimes monsters. And it's about a 20-minute little read and it's all about learning. And really they sort of delve and sort of have a back and forth um, exploration of a topic, uh, which I find just, it's entertaining, especially as you hear uh, a young person figuring things out and asking questions. Mm -hmm. And then uh, recently, Nora, who's 12, uh, Nora Darko, uh, who's, as we mentioned, John Darko earlier, uh, John's daughter, yep. started this podcast called Let Me Answer That, uh, which is a very short podcast. It's about four or five minutes per episode. And what she does is she takes a question that somebody has sent to her and researches and answers the question as best she can. She puts together her, an idea. And you can submit questions also mm -hmm. uh, to her at Let Me Answer That podcast at gmail.com. So I'll put links to both of their podcasts in my show notes and also the link to Nora's email. So um, I would love it if Nora had like 200, 300 listens to some of her episodes yes. in the upcoming no, weeks. That would be um, kind of awesome. While I haven't heard Avery's podcast that you mentioned, and I'll definitely follow that up, I have listened to Nora's. Um, and yeah, it's great to, to listen to her answer questions. Yeah. All right. Well, Barry, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a, a great conversation. Yeah, it's been awesome. It's been I, I'm looking forward to seeing. You. I'm looking forward to seeing you in a few weeks at the read, because um, what we're about when this comes out, it'll be about two months till we show up at the read. Well, two months till I show up at the read. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll be probably have to, I'll be there a little <laughs> bit earlier. There. Yeah, yeah, um, you, you have to be there a little earlier. My wife yeah. um, teaches AP US history, and she's going to her first read, um, and they're session one. Um, so, uh -huh. like, she's going to be leaving for her reading, you know, eight days, nine days before you leave for the reading in Kansas City. And I leave, like, the day after her. Uh, oh. So, yeah, we're, we're going to be incognito for a while. But yeah. I'll see you in a, in a couple months. Yeah, you'll you'll have the time you'll have the time to come and have a fifteen second conversation with me while I'm sitting at a table. Exactly, because um, you will have no other time. Yep. <laughs> All right, let me give show credits. Please subscribe to Life of the School podcast on your podcast player of choice. It's available on iTunes. Uh, podcast player you can also download it on stitcher or podbean or really any podcast player it's pretty much broadly available patreons can subscribe to this episode i've been sharing out uh, my episodes early to patreons i tried a new system last 
uh, episode, and I'm going to continue to share out a few days in advance to my Patreons exclusively. So if you want to go to patreon.com slash lots, you can donate. And as I said, I try to provide that benefit of an early release to my Patreons. Uh, you can also get show notes at uh, my Patreon page or at lifeofthe-school.org. Music on this and every episode is provided by Jake Jenkins and X Magicians. And you can follow me at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School on Twitter. Uh, Barry, you are on Twitter as well. You're... Oh, gosh. <laughs> my Twitter handle, I think it's Barry Eyed at... Yeah, I think you're just at Barry Eyed, but I will put it in the show notes uh, so you can follow Barry's really inconsistent uh, or non-existent <laughs> Twitter existence um, on Twitter. All right. Thanks for joining me, everybody. And I'll talk to everybody soon.